Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This week I chat to Gabe Cook, aka the Ciderologist, in Hereford. We met up and went to the Barrels, which is a bit of a, I understand, a Hereford institution, great, great real ale pub in Hereford. And we chatted cider. Um, Gabe talked about his his beginnings in cider as a Herefordshire boy, grew up around it, drinking it, enjoying it, and then found himself working in it and has been working in cider as a maker, as an advocate, as a spokesperson ever since. Uh, now, Gabe's got a book coming out in September called Ciderology, uh, which is he, a described conversation starter, which I really like. Uh, the idea of it, it's starting a conversation about cider and, and bringing it to a wider audience um, there's some great uh, and very talented producers out there and they are relatively unknown in the wider drinks market and they deserve to be known and they deserve to be recognized and that is is Gabe's role in many ways um, he's been the ciderologist for just just over a year now and uh, I was in Hereford to celebrate that first birthday with him and celebrate the launch of a new collaborative uh, beer slash cider drink um, which is delicious um, and, I, and I'll be hopefully bringing back a bottle from the Cider Salon this weekend in Bristol. So Bristol, June 22nd, 23rd, 24th is the inaugural cider salon it's a celebration of fine cider and and it and it's really exciting i can't wait i'm going to a cheese and cider tasting on friday evening and then the cider salon on the saturday so if you're listening to this on the sunday that's already happened but keep your eyes peeled i'm sure there will be another one it'll be a great success so look i really love chatting to gabe he's a really gregarious charismatic guy and uh, i'm sure you'll enjoy listening to him cheers I'm in Hereford today uh, with Gabe Cook, uh, the ciderologist. Happy birthday. Well, thank you. It's my first birthday. If only, if only I looked like I was one <laughs> years old. It'd be pretty terrifying with that moustache if you were a one-year-old. That would be, that'd be weird. Yeah. yeah no, uh, thanks for coming down. Really, uh, it's, good, uh, it's good to have you in the Shire. And this is, uh, yeah, it's a big day. It's been, it's, been a good, it's been a good year. It's been, been a really good start to my uh, independent cider adventure. And... There seems to be an interest in people wanting to be more knowledgeable about cider, um, and it's great. And there's you know there's a little gaggle of, of people who are all kind of doing the same, whether it be around cider making, different processes, or you know really crucially to me and certainly to you around the concepts of cider and food, and mm-hmm. especially cider and cheese. Mm-hmm. So there's, I think, it's the most uh, exciting time for cider in a very long time, and I'm really I'm really chuffed to be mm. part of it. It's great. I mean, I guess in a nutshell, ciderologist, you're kind of a an ambassador really for cider that you know is the great umbrella term of cider mm. really and, and and good quality cider and bringing the concept of that and, and yeah. you know to the market and to, to to people who perhaps have not even considered it before yeah it's it's i've just turned my i basically turned my i'm trying to turn a hobby into a into a job so I'm, i've always been uh, for for the last 15 years or so but it's been really Passionate and fascinated by by cider in all of the all of its ways. Yes, of course, the end product. But for me, it was always about a sense of place and history and heritage and culture and tradition and varietals that that interplay between um, nature and science and art. I don't know. It just it's just it's always uh, held a fascination 
for me and I'm basically I'm I'm too nosy to be a cider maker because you've got to invest so much time into doing your own thing mm-hmm. I'm just really nosy I want to know what everyone is doing yeah. right, and understanding it and let's be fair I'm an okay cider maker but I'm but not, you have been, you have been I a have, cider maker I have been a cider maker mm. uh, for a few years from the bigger and smaller scale and I did, I did alright I did yeah. alright but yeah. I'm better at talking about it yeah yeah so <laughs> so I just I, I could I did foresee, and I do continue to to see that there is an opportunity for a cider advocate because there there is no mm. other independent person essentially doing this anywhere else in the world. Now maybe no. there's a very strong reason for that because it's <laughs> a bit challenging. But, but it really, feels a little bit like the world of cheese in that there's a lot of people in the world of cheese, you know, essentially spending all day every day looking at curds, and actually it's very difficult for them because oh, yeah. you know because if, if it's their own herds, for example, yeah. you know the cows need milking every day, yeah. the cheese needs making every day, absolutely. And so how do they get out? how do they get out and tell people about what they do it's quite a hard hard trick to perform and actually if there's someone like you doing that in the world of cider then all to the good i have to say the the response that i've had from cider makers has just been amazing i think they they understand what it is that i'm trying to do which is to raise the profile and the awareness of cider as a drink Mm -hmm. as a as a category if you want to use a slightly more uh, uh, industry kind of term um and just trying to embed some understanding about what cider is and what it can yeah. be the preconceptions that so many consumers hold uh, of whether that being a very mainstream product or a rough old kind of scrumpy or a, or a white cider or any of the you know those those drinks those stereotypes they exist they're not made up but they don't that's not what cider necessarily no. has to be uh, let, as let, we're both aware we there's some um, just some sensational drinks out there yeah i mean there i mean i've yeah i mean i've been introduced to the concept of so not the concept of cider but the the wider world of cider really only in in the last eight nine months yeah and it, yeah it's astounding the range of flavor and and complexity and you know texture and all you know people will get very hung up on cheese and wine yeah. for obvious reasons but I think there is as much variety and as much excitement and as much pleasure fundamentally to be had from that combination. I want to go back a little bit uh, now, just because cool. obviously ciderologist is now. Yes. But you haven't always been no. a ciderologist. No, you, no. This is. I mean, you know. Let's go back to. Let's go back to the beginning. Well, yeah. I mean, cider. Obviously, you're from the right part of the world to get the bug early. I am. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm from a wee little village called Dimmock, which mm-hmm. sits just inside the uh, Gloucestershire bit of the Gloucester Hereford border. Um, famous for its uh, wild daffodils that uh, pop up every spring, Narcissus pseudonarcissus. They form a carpet across all the uh, the woodlands and yeah. the un- uncultivated yeah, go, go land. Daffodil advocate, bloody right! Yeah, they're right. absolutely fantastic. No, they really they put on the most amazing show, and they're really mm. really rare. And for anybody uh, for anybody who's um, knowledgeable on poets or uh, U.S. poets especially, or in fact any U.S. citizen will have heard of Robert Frost, and he was part of a little gaggle uh, of poets who who congregated in and around uh, Dimmock just before World War One, and uh, his very famous poet The Road Not Taken uh, was inspired by his time in Dimmock you know the first lines are uh, two roads diverge in a yellow wood and that yellow wood pertains to Dimmock Woods although he wrote it when he was back in in uh, in the USA it's all about that so so little Dimmock has its place uh, has its place in the history books it's also um, home to Charles Martel the um, Renowned uh, cheesemaker, mm-hmm. he of, of of Stinking Bishop of fame, yeah, Mayhill Green and and single Gloucesters, you know, uh, his use of the his his role in the the protection uh, and conservation of the Gloucester cattle breed was was 
was uh, really, really important. And mm. so that's, that's the herd that he uses mm -hmm. for his cheeses. So, yes, a little village that's sort of steeped in, in, a, in a lot of history. And I just, I became fascinated with, with I just enjoyed drinking it when I was younger, yeah. as many of us and do. And what sort of cider were you drinking as a young, you know? So in my, it was like my treat over the weekend, would, I could go and like pick a four pack of cider when mm. I was maybe just slightly less than 18. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was... Um, Old English and Scrumpy Jack. Mm -hmm. I don't think I went for Strongbow. I think I went for Woodpecker once or twice, but I just found it too sweet. And then, so that was what I was sort of drink, doing first. And then uh, Much Markle uh, is the village next door to, to Dimmock, and that's where Westerns are based. Yeah, right. So I started to drink them, and I had a friend from school, uh, his mum worked there, so he would drop by a flagon of Old Rosie every now and again. And my sort of real sort of interest inside, I kicked off about fifth, or oh no, 16, 17 years ago with my eldest brother. Um, we wanted to, we wanted to, to sort of try and find some good ciders. We went to visit Westerns first of all, and man, they were making some sensational drinks back then. You know, um, they've obviously they've grown kind of almost tenfold in the in the time since when I first visited. Wow, in that, um, in that time period. Yeah, they've had a, they've had a spectacular yeah. growth. You know, and and inevitably it has to have some kind of impact upon the. Mm. Um, on the on the flavour profile, so they were making some outstanding ciders back then. Make some pretty good ciders today yeah. too, still. Um, and then we wanted to try and find some of the smaller, more farmhouse producers. So visited Ross and Y and Mr Oliver, uh, Newton Court. Where else did I go? Um, but for organics, and it's like this is real interesting. I did a bit of volunteer picking one year for for Mike at a Broom Farm, and mm -hmm. um, it just really held a, it drew together all my interests, sort of. Uh, natural history and local history and, and varietals and, and, and orchards and You're a and ge culture. geography graduate, is that I was right? A, I was a geographer, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's all ties in. It, I mean, it does, you know, it does. Uh, and so the human and the, and, the, and the physical and the totally. landscape and all of that. Yeah. So uh, without waffling on for, for too much longer about... Well, you're or, welcome or, uh, to, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and <laughs> nod. It's out. fine and listen. It's my favourite Are thing. you awake? Okay. <laughs> so I, I did some travelling and when I came back, I went to visit Mike at Ross side and say hello and buy a bottle bottle of cider and he said do you want a job yes please and so I ended up living on the farm for about a year yeah uh, undertaking and learning about the cider making process the craft of that kind of cider making as well as a bit about orchards and varietals and um, and selling it and uh, I was I lived in a, quite literally a shed in the garden I, I did have electricity so I had a I had a heater and a stereo and a lamp uh, and an African fertility doll, I seem to remember. You do, you do a lot of strange <laughs> things when you're 23. Yeah, um, and it's brilliant. And, and it, just, it just showed me that cider was the thing that, that I wanted to yeah. do. I didn't really know how or what or why. Um, but through doing a master's program and doing some work placements, I got to meet some of the UK cider industry. And Weston's offered me a job as a cider maker. And uh, that hadn't necessarily been been the plan it wasn't I wasn't necessarily what I was looking to do but you can't turn an opportunity like that down yeah. so so I was just, I went from making cider in 200 litre wooden barrels to 200,000 litre stainless steel tanks yeah, wow. and so it was a shock to the system in terms of size and scale yeah. and process but essentially it, I, I, I my approach to cider making at Westerns was entirely born out of what I'd learned at Broom Farm which is you know varietals and blending um, and in terms of being very clean and process and just being diligent and trying to do it right and topping up, not allowing any air to get to the cider. And yeah, it was, it was, a, br it was a brilliant experience. Mm. I, I, it was amazing and, and gives me the, the confidence and, and I think a bit of the, the credibility to talk about the cider making process and the stuff that I do today, yeah. even though I'm not a cider so maker So do you think make, making the product is a kind of, uh, 
you know, for anybody wanting to get in, into any sort of, I guess, uh, food industry, frankly, is, is, is food and drink industry is, is the best way to understand it, not just how to make it, but how people consume it, what people are looking for, how outlets can market it, you know, it kind of, when you start from that kind of grassroots, you, you're getting an, in, you know, the inside out way of looking at things. Yeah, I mean, if you look at other industries, um, you can be a master of wine without actually having ever really been a winemaker per sure. se. You, you have no doubt that you can have huge knowledge on a topic without necessarily having mm. done it itself. But there are certain elements that you probably wouldn't understand all the nuance of it unless you had done the cider making process. Right. Um, I... I, I I think it's really important for me and all the various things that it, it just helps me really understand um, why, why, why things pan out the way they are or what kind of process of impacts it upon how a, how a flavor is, a, is, yeah. a, is achieved. And but also, presumably, there's a level of respect due from the people that you deal with on a daily basis because they know that you know that it's graft and hard work and diligence and yeah. all the things that perhaps people don't consider to be you know sexy or whatever, but yeah. they're, they're vital components to making this amazing product. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's a, it was a really good experience for mm. me, and um, and it was great. It was a privilege working at Westerns, working with the, the, the amazing range of oak vats that they've there it must be the best the best range in the in the country or maybe even kind of further afield you know we're talking the original three Gloucester Hereford and Worcester they're 1200 gallons and they were second hand when Henry Weston bought them in 1880 so they could be the best part of 200 oh yeah they could be the best part of 200 years old and then they're the huge ones um so squeak is the largest vessel there 42,107 gallons it's about a third of a million pints pretty big it's yeah. like it's 30 foot tall it, it, I mean the, it, yeah. it is a spectacular and I say it was a real privilege to have the opportunity to work yeah with those tanks you know and even in some of the other the other smaller vat houses up in the up in the rafters there uh, was it's not exactly graffiti but you know a signature like Dave Jones 19th of May 1932 kind of thing mm. and so I obviously added you know G Cook 2009 yeah. in there but it just it, it, it exudes kind of a history. But with someone like Westerns, there'll be someone looking in 70, 80, 90 years' time at your at your signature. Hopefully, I mean. Yeah, it was a bit rubbish, but yeah. So I just that was that was fascinating. Yeah. But but I did come. But I did start to get bored because right. because you'd spend eighty percent of your time cleaning. You know mm. that is a large amount of cider making, as any cider yeah. maker will attest to. Um, and I just I just wanted to have opportunities to advocate cider. I was doing that in my own time, getting involved with the likes of the Big Apple and the Three County Cider and Perry Association. I was just really interested in learning more and speaking about and and so I knew that actually I needed to get out of cider making and try and find some kind of advocacy role. And and one popped up with, mm. with Bullners, with Heineken, world's biggest cider maker, obviously a big global brewer, um, as the cider communications manager, which involved primarily being the link between the company and the site in Hereford and Plough Lane and the local community because Bulmers has, has had such a, um, a strong and uh, affectionate impact upon the, the community of Hereford City and Herefordshire for, since its uh, inception in 1887. The company was sold in 2003 as a family business um, to Scottish and Newcastle who were then uh, the UK's biggest sort of brewery chain and a lot of, uh, a lot of people were made redundant. Uh, it was quite a painful and traumatic time and Heineken had purchased Scottish and Newcastle just a couple of years before I got involved and so they were still in the process of trying to reach out to the community to say um, you know obviously everything has changed but 
this is still an important integral part of, yeah. of, of, of the community and of the city. So basically, it gave me the opportunity to do lots of really fun and cool stuff with local cider makers and the city and yeah. the county. And we did some, we did some great stuff. Um, then it turned a little bit more corporate within the within the organisation, and that's not really my cup not of cider. No. So. One of the places I'd travelled to uh, prior to starting a broom farm was New Zealand and had loved it. And it was always an ambition to go and live and work there one day. So I went for it. And amazingly, they let me in and actually gave me a visa that entitles me to live and work there forever. So oh, wow. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty fortuitous in that respect. Because yeah, you've, just, you've just come back from there and you're off there again later in the year. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, uh, it seems to be that visiting NZ yeah. twice a, a year is, the, is yeah. the way to go. So, so from I, one shire to, to another. Uh, well, kind of. Uh, the, the bit of New Zealand that I hung out in, Nelson, Yeah, right. Um, in so many ways has a great deal of similarity to the shire. It's all about uh, growing apples and hops and, mm. and black currants and other soft fruits. There's a few more... Uh, uh, wine, wine varietal, grape varietals out there. Um, some spectacular wines made. So, yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. And I worked for a little cider maker called Peckham's, probably the most uh, progressive and best cider maker in the country. They keep on winning lots of awards. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they're an English couple who've planted up the largest block of traditional West Country cider apple varieties in the whole of New Zealand. Right. All 12 acres or something of it. Pretty, pretty minuscule in the sure. grand scheme of things. But trying the trailblazers, to really. I mean, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, these are apple varieties that are used to the conditions of, you know, Kingsbury Episcopi or Oakle Pitchard. Yeah. Um, not, you know, uh, a, a sort of semi-tropical temperate environment with huge amounts of and sunshine. What are the challenges hours. of that been? I mean... You so know, it was a case of... So these guys of Peckham's have planted up all these varieties. Yeah. And there, there is no great uh, literature base as to what happens when you... No. these varieties. So, so they're just doing the trial and error themselves. And some varietals, like Dabonet, for example, which is you know the kind of the workhorse of the UK cider mm. industry. Smaller cider makers like it because it's got you know really bold tannins and it, and, it, and it's an impressive uh, cider that it makes. A lot of body, a lot of character. And bigger cider makers like it because it has the requisite amount of tannin. But as far from a growing point of view, uh, it crops quite precociously, and right. it's you can prune it such that it you can pretty much keep it out of its biennial habit. Um, over in NZ and in pretty much everywhere else that I've seen it attempted to be grown around the world it doesn't fare so well and then slightly more obscure varieties do do a bit better mm. so so every nation every area that is trying to grow these apple varieties is just trying to work so it out argue, from scratch arguably with the sort of the success of some varieties that might not do so well here you'll end up with you know New world ciders that are, you know, got quite different characteristics. Well, yeah. you know, in the same way that you know you have with wine. I mean, you've got a lot. Do you, so, do you see that reflected? I mean, yes. you know, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the sort of the Sauvignon Blanc grape, all that kind of big, kind of bold, fruity, tropical fruit thing that you get in New Zealand versus the kind of flinty, austere, old school, uh, you know, old world version. Is there a similar? Und- undoubt- undoubtedly, the the terroir and the, and the culture of making cider in different regions will will give you a different a different result from 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 the same varietals i don't know whether i've tried uh enough varietals for there to understand what the precise difference is you do um so for a kingston black let's say grown in in nelson and i've tasted some grown up in you know vashon island washington state or whether it be uh, new york state there is a, a similarity a commonality of flavor profile from 
the UK exponents to those all around the world, but I don't know whether I could put on the, the exact kind of regional influence or No, but presumably style. if there was any study in that, that it would be in its infancy. You know, oh. it's not, this is all there kind is, of new ground being broken. Unfortunately, there's very little research that mm. takes place mm. around cider and around cider apples. Cornell uh, University in the US are probably... Yeah doing the most pioneering Apple research at the moment. Okay. All sorts of interesting things, as is the way the USA has really got on board with cider over the last 10 years and the volumes of volumes have grown exponentially uh, and value. You've one large player in Angry Orchard and then a huge number of larger regional players as well. Um, and yeah, it's the, uh, for me, the most exciting and interesting things are, are, are happening out there. There's some, they don't have the, the, they don't have the heritage of cider making uh, that we do over here, although it was their indigenous, it was their indigenous alcoholic fermentation. When when the founding fathers came over, it was it was apples they were bringing with yeah, them rather right. than uh, barley, hops, and or, or, or grapes. The the you know the climate up mm. in New England is much more suited those temperate climates for apples. And so cider cider was was the original drink. It wasn't until uh, like the mid nineteenth century when. The first sort of big wave of Eastern and Central European uh, immigrants came over, bringing with them their their beer history and heritage, right. the Germans and the Czechs, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And that's when sort of beer kind of took off. But then the death knell for cider in the US was um, was prohibition. Mm-hmm. You can do a half decent job at trying to hide a still or a brewery. It's quite hard to hide an orchard. Yeah, right. Uh, so they the orchards either got chopped down. Or, or very visibly grafted over to, to, to eating or juicing yeah. varietals. And, and that's then, what and cider then, became, isn't it? Well, this is it. So it's yeah, hard cider. That's right. Yeah, right. So I think because of, because of prohibition and the length of time, and then when it ended, what was, what was, was being made was this fresh-pressed you know, farm apple juice, unpasteurized, mm. and that was just called cider. And so then as little trickles of fermented came back in, that was, right. oh, well, we can't call it cider. I think that's where the terminology hard cider came right. in. So they are the only nation in the world that calls fermented apples not hard cider but hard cider. cider. I think I perceive there being a little, a little bit of a movement to try and align themselves with the rest of the world and to try right. and reclaim cider for, okay. the, for the fermented side of things. So very, very interesting things and times happening. So well, no, I mean, you know, cider clearly has a kind of... Obviously, you know, on these shores, but in the states, has a has a pretty, you know, there's quite a lot. There's a lot of heritage, but it's perhaps not sort of heritage in the sort of uh, historic sense of the word. Well, know? they don't and, have and the the old medieval history that we do. So they will you know, no, they'll no, never... no, sure. But I mean, even here, it's not. We're not talking about a beverage that was necessarily drunk by the people who are writing history. It's it's a drink for, you know, the man. Yeah, out and about in the yeah, fields, yeah, the yeah, working yeah. man essentially. Yeah, and and so the whole idea that that cider is actually becoming, you know, the fact that there is the fine cider company with Felix Nash, things well, like that. That's a relatively, is that a relatively new idea? Well, no, or is I it, mean, it's not a new thing. Presumably, those ciders have, all, you know, people have been making cider to that standard for a while now. Well, this is it. The what the what a lot of people don't know about is that cider in the UK did actually have have a period of about like a hundred years or so or certainly mm. like 80 years where it was the finest drink of the nation oh right if we, t- if we go back to sort of the mid early 17th century there's a few different things happening first of all unsurprisingly Britain's at war with most of Europe but certainly with Spain and France and the Netherlands mm. um, and so wine imports were, were dramatically reduced over okay. to the UK 
and the, the aristocracy were getting a little bit, a little bit thirsty, a bit sober, a bit sober <laughs> yeah. and that's never a good thing. No. And so, so, so there, there is a demand now for, for something indigenously made within the UK that can act as some kind of substitute. Right. So there's a demand for a particular booze. Same time, a chap called Lord Scudamore, who uh, his family seat was at Home Lacey, Home Lacey House, which is a little village just south of Hereford. He was the ambassador to France, and he and he came back, and he was a keen horticulturalist, and he brought back with him some um, some apple trees that he thought that could potentially make some good cider. And uh, one of them was amazing. It had such a precocity; it produced so much fruit, and every year, and it was so tasty. Had it appeared that there would have been a bit of sharp, so acid and tannin and bold fruitiness. Uh, Scudamore called it the, the Herefordshire Red Streak, or some people called it the Scudamore Crab. And such, it, started, it was planted everywhere. John Evelyn wrote in 1664 that Herefordshire had started to become but one giant orchard based around the planting the, of, the Red Street. of the Herefordshire Red Street. Yeah. Wow. And, and the third thing that was happening is that... Um, a, a number of sort of engineers uh, with Sir Kenham Digby at the at the front of it were making some considerable progress in in, in glass making technology, specifically strengthened glass. Right. And through that, you know, doing by adding extra sort of um, minerals and, and, and metallic sort of compounds to the glass to make them strengthen a hotter furnace. Um, he, his furnaces were down on the the banks of the River Severn at, uh, at Newnham on Severn, just just next to the Forest of Dean. And so what was happening was that this exquisite cider was being placed into these strengthened bottles, yeah. either just at the very end of their initial fermentation, or as the documents demonstrate, uh, with a walnut of sugar added back post-fermentation okay. right, into right. this bottle with a closure. And what happens? A secondary or finishing the primary fermentation, an in-bottle fermentation. Yeah. We've got some yeast, we've got some sugar. We're getting a natural fizz in the bottle. Now, that obviously, that has the, the primary reason why they were doing that was so that um, so that the CO2 could fill that. They didn't know the science behind it, but they found that when you did that, the cider kept. It was fresh. It was clean because mm. the CO2 was occupying the headspace and stopping. There's no oxidization. Exactly, or yeah, right. no opportunity for a acetobacter mm -hmm. to get in. And obviously, you had some bubbles too. This mm. is the first part of the... You know, method traditionnel. Yeah, right. And was that happening in France yet? This was happening before Dom Perignon right. had left the monastery okay. to go to the winery. So actually, mm. the UK can claim the first demonstration of the in-bottle fermentation of the champagne method. So it shouldn't be called the champagne method. It should be called the Forrester Dean method. That's, <laughs> that's what I propose. That trips off the tongue. <laughs> the FOD. Yeah, now, FOD. something tells me. FOD. The FOD. Ford method. <laughs> Something tells me that the French aren't going to go for that. However, no. heritage um, is very important. But we were there first. Yeah, right. So, so, so this is the Aris. Those are drinking this fine, this sparkling, this fine sparkling bottle condition out of beautiful tall crystal right. flutes. Um, and it was, it was, it was yeah. this fine drink. But then two things happened. Uh, firstly, through the Treaty of some of that I've forgotten. We became friends with Portugal, 1703, I think it mm -hmm. was. And so we started to get lots of sherry. And apparently the Aristos quite like that. So, Anger? Uh, yeah. So, um, so, uh, so yeah, they started drinking that. But the real death knell was in 1763, I think it is, when the cider bill was passed. Now, this was a very ill-advised decision by Lord Bute, who was the prime minister at the time. Yeah. Uh, basically, uh, he needed some... He, he, the, the government was skint, 
but they needed to fund uh, that because of the uprising in North America. Um, there was a bit of fighting going on, so they needed to raise some 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 cash. Right. So they thought the best way to do it was to put a tax on cider. But, but even more importantly, that the tax was determined by the taxman turning up unannounced, unwarranted to your premises and had the right to have a nosy around the barn, see how much cider you're making and tax you for it. And this caused outcry, partly that cider was being taxed, but also the, the infringement on one's you know, personal property, mm. personal space. And so there, were, there, were, there was much protestation and wailing and gnashing of yeah. teeth. You know, there were riots in the street. Down in, down in Somerset, there were effigies being hung up of the lamppost. That's just a normal Friday night in Glastonbury, <laughs> I suspect. But, you know, there was, there was obviously a, there was a big backlash. And um, William Pitt the Elder did a really impassioned uh, speech in, in Parliament that essentially about, about the, to paraphrase, you know, an Englishman's home is his castle right. and they should be able to defend it. Yeah. And, and that speech formed the base of the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution about being able to defend one's own property. So, CIDA has a role in, in, uh, in U.S. history it's, and constitution it's all, it's all as well. in your upcoming tome? Well, it, we it's should, we should funny just you mention that. that. Little, little sneaky little uh, drop. Yes, I, I've written a book. My advice is don't write a book because <laughs> it's, it's considerably harder than one might surely, think. Surely your advice should be have a book published that you have written. Just buy a book. Yeah, right. Preferably mine. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Ciderology, unsurprisingly. Uh, it comes out 27th of September. It is a bit of a one-stop shop. It yeah. covers everything. It's a bit about the state of play of cider at the moment. Uh, apples, orchards, varietals, cider-making process, styles of cider. It's a really important thing for me to try and introduce some kind of language and stylization, mm-hmm. right? That isn't just dry or sweet or apple or fruit. Yeah. Um, and then a bit of a focus around um, cider making nations and cider makers all around the world. And then I have a look at Perry and what's sailing and food matching. And it's just a, a bit of everything. Yeah. Something for the uh, you know, inveterate cider fan or cider novice or just kind of curious, you know, someone who's interested about sort of food and drink in general. But I mean, you've talked, to, I guess you've talked about it starting the conversation. And I think that's what re- I'm really looking forward to seeing yeah. it because for exactly that reason, because what's there's not it, enough. Know? Yeah, there's just not enough conversation around there's the subject. The, you know, and once the conversation starts, yeah. you know, suddenly you've got all sorts of avenues I to go down. I am very happy. In fact, I welcome people uh, disagreeing with me on, on anything I've written. Yeah. Um, because because there, need, there needs to be debate. Because yeah. with debates, you gain a better understanding of the, of, the, of the drink and of the category and what's happening and why and, mm-hmm. and the opportunities for improvement mm-hmm. or growth or yeah. just celebrating this kind of drink. Yeah. At the moment, I'm just kind of shouting away and waiting for someone to, to, to come back. Yeah, yes, yeah. people um, do come back. It's they quite they interesting. yeah, they will uh, do. I, I put a little post up on my way here today saying, um, you know, basically heading west, heading to the west country. Yeah, big yeah. mistake. Uh-uh. We are not in the west country. Well, I mean, I live in East London, so as I said, on, at the any, time, anywhere any, around anywhere west. Is the west country, but um, yeah. Don't, no, don't Her- Herefordshire uh, probably isn't the West Country, but you know it's on the border of Wales. It is. So it is. As west as you get before you get to Wales. Well, yeah. <laughs> Somebody from Somerset might argue differently. They, well, they would, they're, and, they're, and they're, they would be right. There too, will be a line a, somewhere. Wrong. You know, I'm from Gloucestershire, and Gloucester. You know, would you say Gloucester's part of the West Country? Probably. May I think some people consider Gloucester to be the furthest. Well, I think we, uh, Wikipedia furthest would, uh, north outpost. Would, 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 would 
uh, yeah, be able to settle the argument. Wiltshire, so. Somerset, Devon, Dorset. See, I wouldn't even call Wiltshire Southwest, but anyway, let's let's there let's, you go. let's <laughs> yeah. get off so that. There's always so. a debate. There's always a debate. Yeah, right. So no, it's all good. It's really exciting. Uh, it's um, yeah, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to it yeah. to it coming out and seeing what people think of it, and hopefully, yeah, it will just spark some imagination mm. and some conversation and get people thinking and talking and just making people and more and knowledgeable. It'll be available in all good bookshops in all good bookshops that's really exciting online retailers etc cool. excellent well look that seems like a good place to stop because yeah, we've, got, we've got to go to a birthday party we do we Will do there cake? there's going to be cake there's going to be jelly and ice cream marvellous there's going to be there's past the parcel um, uh, I think I'm the clown quite possibly <laughs> uh, no it's going to be fun we've got lots we've got some I've brought some really interesting sides from around the world to try some Aussie New Zealand USA Poland Spain Canada and Switzerland great so some really interesting stuff to try fantastic uh, and, and, a, and a great opportunity just to, to celebrate cool. cider once again so cool. cheers well, thanks, coming down, for, mate. thanks for chatting chatting to me on this no and, worries. Um, let's catch up again when your book's out we'll do nice one cheers, cheers mate. so that was the ciderologist in Hereford uh, really enjoyed chatting to Gabe. Always good to catch up. Uh, he's off travelling around the world again later this year. He's off to uh, New Zealand and Japan. And he's very much uh, a real personality in the world of cider. And look out for his book, of course, in September, Ciderology. Hopefully catch up with him when that's out and, and have a little chat about it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to know more about Seliman, go to seliman.co.uk uh, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Sam. Uh, and we're going to take a little break for a couple of weeks and probably keep up that that couple every two weeks, at least over the summer period, uh, while everyone's away on holiday. And I hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts, lying on the beach with a glass of cider and, and a plate of cheese. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.